Hello and welcome to uh, episode 11 of season 2 of the Talking Toro podcast. It is episode 25 in total. Um, we know that Torino haven't played for, for a number of weeks, but we felt you might have missed our uh, somewhat husky than normal Midland accents. Unfortunately, the weather has uh, dictated my voice a little bit, but I'm here as always with my guest Peter Bourne and we'll just be catching up on a couple of things that has happened in the in the world of Toro before um, Torino get back in action on the 4th of January uh, at home to Verona. So, uh, Peter, do you want to wish our, our dozens of listeners, or half dozens of listeners, a Merry Christmas? Merry Christmas indeed. I think you're forgetting Torino have played a game. Did we, did we not get a, um, a resounding draw with, was it Almeria? Al and we beat us. And we beat Espanyol. Espanyol and Almeria, we conceded our customary late goal. And I did, I think, quite often during the World Cup with this, um, I guess, this notion of increased injury time coming our way in Serie A. I mean, how bad are Torino going to be when, when there's 15 minutes injury time, not five? I mean, just I, just, just think what we'll be, the, the kind of riddles we'll be able to get ourselves we into. We might be able to, we might concede the equaliser in the 95th minute, but then score a winner in the 105th. Think of the positives. I think, I think we need to be at least three nil up going into, and yeah, kind of kind of five weeks away. And I just I mean, there's been these little bits, little, little bits of Toro news, but um, it, yeah, it's been it's been kind of hard to focus on it. But I, yeah, I guess now it's quite. It's, I'm actually quite excited for the for the league to come back. It's been um, it kind of feels like the start of a new season. Um, although. I kind of guess as we left it, as we predicted, I don't think when Torino faced Verona on the 4th of January, there'll be much change in terms of, of personnel. I'm not, kind of see, I'm not seeing a lot in the way of transfers anywhere really across Serie A. So I think we can expect to, to kind of be um, status quo a little bit when we get back. Uh, yeah, I think we'll probably dig into the World Cup a little bit more, but I probably feel a bit guilty. For, I probably enjoyed the tournament more than I thought I was going to. Uh, which to some extent has made me maybe not as miss Torino and, and Toro games as much as I thought I would in, the, in that gap. But I think come the sort of next couple of weeks, it be about right, and then we will get the sort of the, the Wednesday game and the the Sunday game to to sort of have a, a double header of Torino to sort of kick off with. Yeah, do you not find them with the World Cup? I mean, I I I really like the World Cup. I kind of get very excited about it, and I love the fact that it's every every four years. I found the four games a day was was quite was quite hardcore. Um, I'm looking at I kind of worked for myself, so I could have the screen on, and it wasn't like watching every game. But if a game kind of had quite an interesting narrative or going into the last twenty minutes was was quite exciting, I'd kind of get more tuned into it. Um, but I found yeah, I was really boggle eyed by the fourth fourth game of the day, and I was actually by the time it's quite strange isn't it, when a World Cup gets like to the last eight and the last four, it's um, yeah, it it does it it kind of does does get very very strange when you've got that, that kind of whole block of teams who've gone and and and, and um yeah you, I think you need a lot of um a lot of stamina to get through to get through some of it. But, I think my um, my key was quite selective on which games I'd watch, so I wouldn't try to avoid watching all four in a day. But I mean, those ten a.m. games whilst working from home were were pretty good because. Whilst working for home, a little bit of sort of boring office work, and then I can sort of watch Cameroon Serbia or something in the in the screen to the to the left of me. That that helps, and then 
I'd maybe skip the the 7 p.m. game, just watch the games that have been on the afternoon. I thought the weirdest thing, which probably not really felt too much before, but as soon as England got eliminated, my sort of optimism for the tournament sort of died away. And whether that was just because it was a sort of natural sort of, they were beginning to be full days of, of no games, but as soon as England, we got knocked out, I think my appetite for the semi-finals were probably not as much, not what they would have been for the quarterfinals, if that makes sense, with England still in the tournament. I think, I think the quarterfinals are really good, and I think uh, I'm no massive fan of Brazil per se. I don't like a lot of the kind of... In the UK, I find a lot of the fawning over Brazil and Argentina just a bit annoying, especially on the BBC. You can tell the truth, Peter. You don't like the dancing, do you? You and Roy uh, Keane. No, it's not so much the dancing. It's the kind of... It's kind of this... Um, yeah, just I think as soon as Brazil have a good game, it's like nineteen seventies Brazil all over again. And I think, but I think the World Cup really suffered by um, Brazil not beating Croatia, and I think Brazil Argentina. I think we yeah. kind of lost out in a Brazil Argentina semi final. And probably, and probably similarly, I think France Portugal uh, to, to a lesser extent, but I think France Portugal would have been a, a much more entertaining semi final. Agreed. I think Morocco gave it a really good go, and and I was like. 70 minutes into the World Cup final, I was like, geez, I wish Morocco had got through. It might have given Argentina a better game. And then the final kind of completely transformed. But yeah, it was, um, I, I don't think there was a great team in this World Cup. I thought, you know, there were kind of three or four teams who could have legitimately won it. And I don't think there'd been any huge argument about the quality of um, kind of any of those teams. But we're not in an era where, there's a really kind of really dominant team, kind of slightly Anglo-centric, and I, I guess for England it was a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, and yeah, it was. Um, I, th- I think you're right. I think the, I think we kind of lost a little bit of momentum in the semi-finals, and then you know in, in, until a lot of the drama in the final. Um, I think I think even to think the final itself, I thought it was a very eventful final, but I didn't think it was. Um, I don't know for seventy-five minutes, it wasn't really a contest. But... Yeah, no, the concert. I don't think the concert. It was a final of sort of moments and sort of unbelievable script writing, and you, you sort of couldn't re- really believe what was happening. But I don't think, yeah, like say for seventy minutes, it was quite a disappointing spectacle for anybody not of an Argentinian persuasion. And then just really one careless bit of defending totally changed the game and allowed France to get back into it. But just. Just touching on to your Brazil point a little bit, that sort of does annoy me. Similarly, where people go on about Brazil as being like they they yearn back to former Brazilian teams and former sort of samba style of football. So it's like this is quite a, I would say, poor Brazilian team. In if you compared it with even maybe a team of the last sort of 20, 15, 20 years. I'd say probably the only outstanding player is probably Neymar, who has been in PS- at PSG for the last sort of, four or five years, not really testing himself. Thiago Silva's 38. Uh, they tried playing with one holding midfield player, Rafinha and Richarlison, although Richarlison scored a couple of goals. And not quite Brazilian players that you or I may have grew up with and and sort of really influenced that style of play and say more quite of a functional team than a sort of a, a sexy team as it were. No, they've been that way a long time and I also felt that before the tournament people were talking about oh Brazil have got the uh, the eight forwards that anyone would die for. And I, 
I didn't really see it that way. They're not they're not on the level of the to even the two thousand and two Brazilian team. A lot of kind of fairly good players, but um so I think that, and I think that South, I think the game against South Korea, I think South, you know, South Korea just played completely to their hands. Um, but I do think, yeah, I think as a lot of recent tournaments have, it kind of opened up. You've got the surprise elements, and then there was a. I mean, we talk a little bit maybe about the Torino players there. Obviously, Croatia got very far with with Lasic. Torino have actually got about a million euros from prize money from the five players um, for kind of appearance money from the five players who who were there, which is. Not bad considering Torino don't actually own two of those players, um, but yeah, I thought. Um, I guess if we're talking for me from a Torino point of view, I thought Vanya was probably the standout of the five players we sent to the World Cup. Um, he, and does, I don't think anybody would have predicted that pre-tournament. No, I thought he didn't actually do. Maybe he didn't stay in the tournament long enough to do anything anything stupid, but he. Um, Serbia were pretty poor at the back, but it, none of that was his fault. Didn't don't really think he was at fault for any of the goals. He played very well for about seventy minutes against Brazil. Probably played a key part in one of the goals of the tournament with uh, Abubakar's chipped finish that everybody assumed was offside. So yeah, so uh, yeah. and it just sort of st- just sort of stopped yeah. there. And again, no fault of his own. And I think the commentators made the point that I don't think Abubakar would have finished it in that style had he thought he was onside. Because uh, it was a very sort of calm and cool finish, but yeah, I think I think Vanya surprised me in that he looked relatively competent, which isn't the biggest compliment to pay pay a goalkeeper. But it was sort of one of if if you'd not seen him before, you'd be probably quite impressed by him. And I think that's probably actually a sign that he is getting better and and something which maybe well, me in particular a bit, bit too harsh on him. And there are signs definitely this season that he's improving and. And hope, and that can only be a good thing for Torino. Yeah, uh, the other two Serbian players, I thought Radonjic was he was reduced to kind of cameo appearances, but he played a little bit like he has when he's come on for cameo appearances for Torino, just kind of losing the ball and not really getting into the game. I thought Lukic was solid at times, but I didn't think he had a. I don't think he enhanced his reputation in the in the tournament. Put it that way. I actually thought the other Milinkovic Savic had a really poor tournament and looked. Uh, Look very one paced. Um, I don't think the um, Serbian coach. It's pr- probably difficult because they they have so many good attacking players and trying to get as many of them on the pitch as possible. But going into that, albeit a must win game against Switzerland, they play Milinkovic, Savic, and Lukic as the sort of two central midfielders. And Lukic, even at Torino, doesn't play his best football as. The more whole, the more defensive midfielder of a two. I think you've got to give him a little bit of license to get forward, and he's good with his passing, but he's he's not what you would call an, an old style, older midfield player. So I think they left themselves a little bit too open, and, and that's sort of Switzerland managed to exploit that numerous times and and get, and get the victory. But uh, I could I could I couldn't see the, the coaches' problems because they did have sort of a, a riches in attack up front, and then defensively they did look a bit of a shambles. Yeah, and then talking to Switzerland, uh, Ricky Rodriguez seemed to, I don't know, seemed to play half the tournament at left centre back and do quite well, and at left at left back, I actually thought when um, Switzerland got pummeled by Portugal, he actually did all right in that game. He was, I, I, I felt it was a bit like the World Cup final. I don't think Switzerland were right um, health wise in that game. I think there'd been a a bug going round, but yeah, Rodriguez just seemed to. 
He seemed to have a classic kind of Rodriguez tournament, really. Uh, I, I think in one of the games, I think it might have been even the Serbia game, that he got quite far forward for uh, from left back and, and provided a deep cross to the far post. And I don't think I've seen, don't think I've ever seen him get that far forward for Torino, um, even in brief left wing back spells. Apparently, he's been given three months off rest for that, though. So, we won't see him till April. Well, he, um, he, he was at the Christmas party, which if we do get time uh, to, we, well, might, we may discuss. I've heard, I've, I've heard people describe him as the best-dressed Torino player at the Christmas party. And when as, have, Someone who li- lived in Switzerland for seven years, I've got to say, when a Swiss player is your best-dressed at a Christmas party, you're in, you're in trouble. Uh, we'll, we'll get on to the Christmas party in a minute. I guess a, a little bit of a word for Vlasic, who was the player who, uh, well, got, got deep in well, Stayed for the entire tournament in that, in that Croatia played seven games. Um, took his penalties very well. Yeah, we for, for, and be, being the first taker for both of the shootouts as well, I thought it was probably yeah. quite telling that they they felt that he was always going to be a good bet to score. So it makes you think in training that he's probably probably one of the better takers along with Modric. Yeah, I, I, I probably going a little bit against Grant. I thought Croatia were a bit lucky to. A bit lucky to beat Belgium, um, not beat Belgium to get get through against. I thought Belgium were terrible, but um, I mean Lukaku Luka- 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 probably missed enough chances for. Um, he's probably missed enough chances in that game than Torino have, have managed in a whole season before. Yeah, but I think I, I struggle with Vlasic even at Torino to understand his best position. It seems when Croatia put him on, he's a bit of a kind of. He's one of those players they try and fit into. Uh, different kind of roles in attack, but he just seemed, to, I felt it, the in-game Vlasic was a bit kind of confused and worked hard, um, but was never very near the goal. Um, and his kind of, yeah, his best, his most decisive work was in the penalty shootouts. I was That's... I was surprised. I didn't think Pasalic had a very good tournament. I was surprised that Pasalic was continually given the nod over Vlasic. Um, but then when Vlasic came on, he, as I said, he worked hard, but I don't think there was a, there was a lot of quality there. I think with the Croatian side, they they focus so much on maybe dominating possession and, and were maybe taking players who were maybe a bit more clinical. They weren't focusing on that as much, and that's probably why Aslić got the got the nod just to give that extra sort of central midfield player. Really, I thought Vlasic was unlucky, and you think that he started the tournament in the team, got injured in the opening game against Morocco, and then struggled. Then they they had the good victory against Canada and struggled to sort of come back into the the side, but even when it when he came on in sort of extra times or, or later on in matches, which would then go on to penalties, don't really remember him having many chances. I think he might have had a good chance against Argentina, or when he, he had a bit of a thing might have come on at half time and had a decent cameo appearance then. So it's probably unfortunate not to start the third place playoff, but. I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say that Milinkovic Savic probably had the best tournament of the five. Vlasic obviously the most successful. And probably most disappointing, I'd go for Lukic because I felt he probably could have offered more. And for some a player who seems to be wanting to leave Torino to go move on to better things, he really missed his opportunity to sort of put himself in the shot window, so to speak. Right, look, and, at, look at the tournament Lukic had compared to Amrabat. And, uh, yeah. Amrabat, Amrabat is a player Torino have been so close to signing. Um, on a number of occasions, and he's not been very good for Fiorentina for um, for quite a while. Of, I mean, since they've signed him, really, and they are they are probably going to pick up a, a massive fee for 
player had a brilliant World Cup. Um, and and uh, and to be honest, I, I do think he had a, a really good tournament. And I was disappointed Torino never didn't manage to sign him. But I do think a lot of those Moroccan players, if teams are going to sort of sign them just on the basis of their performances in one tournament for a country, they can't really replicate that throughout season. The playing for your country is a unique experience which you can't replicate playing sort of say goes to the Premier League I, I don't see Amrabat being pumped up for Southampton away as he is going to be for a, a World Cup semi-final in the uh, yeah, in, in 90,000 I was trying to think of the, I genuinely try to think of the worst team in the Premier League and it, it just happened to be Southampton no, you got it you got it um, um, if, I, we'll I, think just... I, think, I think we're missing the big story of the World Cup but I think we were missing the big story which is Gianluca bullshit artist Petracchi <laughs> Uh, who ever since he uh, was left Roma um uh, yeah doesn't seem to have found, found another role as a as um uh, direttore sportivo but uh, he gave an interview during the world cup about all of the players he could have signed at torino um and it was a bit of a it was a bit of interesting list. he also claimed that he'd agreed to Cairo vetoed a, a 50 odd euro million sale of Belotti um, and then he would have reinvested 18 million on Dusan Zapata, which I don't necessarily think would have been brilliant business. But anyway, but it's the the big takeaway for me was he was very close to signing Jude Bellingham. Bearing in mind, Jude Bellingham's 19 now, and Petraki left Torino four <laughs> years ago. Yes, he he almost had a 12 year old Jude Bellingham <laughs> to go straight to the first team. I, well, I, based on my limited knowledge of sort of football contracts and how it works. I believe you until you're 16 maybe or even 7 maybe 16 maybe there was opportunity because in fairness to in fairness to Petraki and to Bellingham oh yeah he must have, yeah he could have only been 15 yeah it, it, it yeah it's it's the sort of thing which if you say stuff it's very difficult to disprove that it didn't happen like I could say Today, I was very, very close to getting Rolando Bianchi on this podcast, but he cancelled at the last minute. Can't disprove that happened, other than the fact I've just told you that it didn't happen. Well, because that's Rolando Bianchi himself. Exactly. So, uh, well, next time, well, if I ever bump into Jude Bellingham, uh, I, I will ask him how close was he to sign up for Torino, and he'll probably look at me as if I need to, need to find if, my carer very quickly. If Torino had signed Jude Bellingham, he would still he wouldn't have even made an appearance for the Primavera team. It's, it, it'd be um, we wouldn't have seen, seen him until uh, he was about twenty seven. So. I mean, I think Petraki may have just got confused because I did sign Jude Bellingham on my Torino football manager team during the pandemic, and we did win the Champions League final. And I think maybe that's what he's thinking of. Maybe he saw my maybe he saw my screenshots on my on my Twitter account, and he seems to think that was real life. I don't know, mate. I don't know. But, but just um, just based on Petraki's sort of uh, fantasy worlds, if you could sign within reason one player from the World Cup for Torino, who would you sign in this January window? Well, the the player we've been linked with is that is the Moroccan forward who everyone laughed at when he came on. <laughs> the kind of battering ram who just it would just run. run I'd got I'd got said to, I got said to yeah, the quarterfinal. I didn't, didn't know what to do with the ball when he got. Um, I mean, uh, I I did I almost did text you when he was playing and like this is who Torino will sign. Walid Walid Kadira, 
I didn't realize he was so young. He's twenty four. He's got quite a decent goal scoring record at Bari, actually. So he does. Um, I mean, he does look um, very raw. But I mean, he was getting chances at a high level that I think you can sort of excuse him for the red cards. I thought I thought one of them was probably a bit of a harsh yellow. Yeah, the other player we've been linked with is um, Juranovic, the Celtic right back. Who, who Barcelona? Who Barcelona now wants? So it's obviously, which, it's obviously fifty fifty. Which, uh, which, well, Torino might be more chance of getting money out of Torino than Barcelona, <laughs> but um, yeah, putting me on the spot a little bit here. Um, are we talking realistic signing? Yeah, real realistic. I know we both liked the um, Canadian centre midfielder from Porto, Stacchio. Yeah, I think I don't think that would be beyond the realms of um, of possibility. Um, yeah, I might have. To, might have to I'll, 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 I'll go for mine just to give you a little bit of time to to think. Uh, I'd go Ritsu Doan. Do you think Torino need to explore the Japanese market again? That, well, that, that's, a, that's a guru didn't true. work out, and I think Doan would would offer us. Uh, I thought I think he's a good player. I think I've seen him before at PSV, and I thought. He, I, I have a bit of a soft spot for all things Japanese, so I did watch a lot of Japan, Japan's games during the World Cup, and, and that, I mean they were a strange side to to lose to Costa Rica, but beat Spain and Germany is somewhat impressive, uh, and probably should have beat Croatia. I thought they were a much better side. Um, so yeah, I go for I go for Doan, even though the sort of Japanese coach did decide to leave him on the bench for the majority of the tournament. Well, I guess, um, I guess on a more serious note, um, I guess towards the end of the World Cup, there was the news about Sinisa Mihailovic, um, Torino coach for for eighteen months, who passed away. It was, I mean, I guess in certain senses it wasn't a shock um, because he'd been battling leukemia for for t- uh, for three years. Um, but in other sense, it was a shock because I hadn't really heard much since he. Um, Lost his job in at Bologna a few months ago. Um, it was just, yeah, it was kind of um, it, it was kind of a big shock in in that sense. And I guess there was what surprised me in a way was how big the coverage was in Italy as well. Um, not um, it was always he was treated like an Italian, like um, almost like the death of um, a very famous Italian player. And I guess Mihailovic had been in Italy since 1991. He played. Um, he moved to Roma in '91. As obviously very successful spells Sampdoria and Lazio later with Inter, and then his his coaching career, which also took him to Torino. So it was, yeah, it was just kind of quite, um, yeah, maybe kind of reflect that yeah he'd spent spent a lot of time in Italy and and and, and had roots there. I think from a personal point of view, Mahal is a very complex character, and we're not gonna have the time time to get into his. All of all of those kind of maybe the friendships he had, or the the kind of certain political allegiances, and I also think there's a lot of things about Mihailovic which um, people have held against him, which um, were had a lot more nuances to it than um, than simply kind of the, the kind of I guess almost like the black and white brush people have have, have painted on some of the incidents of. Um, in the past, and I guess it, for us, it's only really fair to, in a way, to reflect on him and, and his time with Torino. This is a Torino podcast. Um, personally, I thought he was—he um, was a coach who really, oh, as a character, really kind of invested in the DNA of, of the club and the team. Um, 
a lot of his kind of coaching was on on the Grinta side, on the on the getting getting the most out of the players, on having a kind of aggressive team. Um, I I think when he came in, there was um, the the kind of final year under Ventura had been a little bit stagnant, and and he came in, and we had that spell very early into his reign where we beat Roma, Fiorentina, and Palermo very convincingly, and it looked like wow, we were, this is a team that may get. Um, get us back into Europe, but also playing a bit more front foot, a bit more aggressive than the Ventura teams ever did. And then that season, uh, the, the squad was very lopsided. It was um, very poor defensively. Um, I think the loss of Castan that season um, was a big one. And then the, t- the team ended up finishing ninth, which seems to be the the kind of yeah, the position Torino really identified with it over the last decade and then the second season was quite similar and it just we got battered in the derby 4-0 in the league when when he fired up Bazelli 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 got sent off and then we lost the Coppa Italia um just after New Year to Juve with a bit of a limp performance as well and I think Cairo put a lot on the that season on the Coppa Italia but for looking back at the league form around that time it wasn't particularly bad although Personally, I would have a sense of Mihailovic that he wasn't wasn't a tactical guru. Uh, he was very much a motivational guru, and and I think with, in terms of Torino, with hindsight, Mazzali came in and took the team to a to a new level. Um, but I guess yeah, it was um, it was very sad news. I mean, kind of one of my favourite moments of him was when he that that footage of him taking those free kicks against um, a young Milinkovic Savic and Ichatso in training, where he's he's pinging free kicks past him. This is a really strange thing to say, but I I always wonder why Mihailovic never, even in his mid-40s, never registered himself as a player. Uh, to, who would you, you know, to take, to come on and take, if you had a free kick in the 92nd minute, or even a penalty with that left foot, um, and I always thought that at the time, it's just like, you must be, you must be, it must be so annoying, it must have been so annoying for him to be the best free kick taker in the club when you were 10 years retired. Um, but yeah, very, very, kind of very sad news, and um, yeah, I'll kind of let you let you pay your tribute as well. Yeah, I think to, just to echo a, a lot of things he said there, I was I was very shocked. I think he, uh, the first I'd have found out about it was from a message from yourself because I was at work and saw your message, and even though obviously we knew that he'd be been ill, it was still sort of such a shame and and, and a shock to to hear that he, he just unfortunately passed away. Again, probably echoing what you. What you said when he when he became Torino coach had maybe somewhat mixed feelings because of all the things that you'd heard about him and and sort of stories in the press probably not the most positive but only take only talking about his time at Torino I thought he was probably one of my sort of favourite coaches of my era um, if you think sort of Ventura football was was hardly uh, great on the eye Mazzari football wasn't particularly great on the eye either. Mihailovic, whilst definitely had his tactical limitations, did to some extent play sort of a, a 4-3-3. Don't really worry about the the nuances of, of where everyone should be. Just sort of give the better players a bit of freedom. I don't think it's a coincidence that Belotti had his best season under Mihailovic. You could probably argue that without Mihailovic, does Joe Hart sign on loan? At least it was a, a name he'd heard of. A, a sort of a famous European figure. I don't think Ventura would have had the same wealth factor, maybe maybe even Mazzari. 
I don't. I um, also, I also think one of the things. Sorry to interrupt you. Mihailovic was. People talk about. He wasn't very rigid in terms of. He wasn't. He didn't have a stereotype about a player. I didn't find. You know, a lot of Italian coaches would never have had an English goalkeeper. Just it was a stereotype. But he 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 rolled with it, and I felt like he rolled with a lot of other things as well. He was, and even if you look at his entire coaching career, he's, he's coached very kind of multi-ethnic um, players from 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 different countries. So he was. I think he had a certain type of player he liked. He liked an Arnautovic type striker. He liked a big muscular fullback like Lolo did there, Silvestri. Um, and he, he, I think he liked a lot of lungs and, and power in midfield, but he wasn't, yeah, he was kind of very, um, yeah, I, I just don't think he had some of the baggage that Italian coaches had with, with had over certain players. Yeah, and I think, I, I seem to remember. It was the game in Pescara where we had a, a massive injury crisis and he had to play Matteo Aramu. And I think we ended up with nine men. I'm pretty sure it was under Mihailovic. Um, and he gave Aramu a couple of opportunities in pre-season, including the, the Eusebio Cup against Benfica. And I think, like you say, with Italian coaches who are, you until you sort of play 50 games in Serie B, then you, you're a youngster. Don't think he had those sort of same sort of misconceptions or preconceptions, and would blood younger players. And unfortunately, I don't think we had players who at that time were good enough. But had we had a maybe better crop of, of Primavera players, then I, I don't think Mihailovic would have would have worried about playing them. It, it gave Donnarumma his debut at sixteen at AC Milan. So I, I think being a being somebody who coming from Serbia and or coming from Yugoslavia at the time would have been accustomed to sort of at Red Star, 16, 17-year-olds coming into the first team and playing. I don't think in Italy it's just not it's just not seen as much. No. No, so, I mean, like I said, very, very sad news. And I guess um, probably in the first pods of the new year we'll kind of reflect a little bit more. And as we as as our pods tend to be quite nostalgic, we'll probably look back a little bit at, at his team and some of those matches. But um, I'm kind of conscious of time because we've got a, we've got a Christmas... Toro quiz um, coming up as well, which will be released as a as a separate pod. So just I'm guess looking at the first game back in the new year, which is home to Verona, who are on a terrible run. Um, very hard to make a prediction for this game, but I'm just I, I guess I guess asking you two questions. Do you think there'll be any new signings before then? Um, and what's your prediction for that match? I will say there won't be any new signings. I think it's just a little bit too soon to the sort of the transfer window opening and sort of Torino don't tend to do any business that early. Um, I believe, if I'm right, I think Verona have lost 10 on the bounce. The only thing that worries me about this is that it did come across the, the bookmaker's odds for this game, which has Torino just about evens. Which is a little bit worrying to me. Either that's going to make somebody a lot of money because I think that's a ridiculous odds for a sort of mid-table side against bottom in the league who haven't won in 10 games. Or the bookies also feel that three they're going to find a way to mess this up. Um, I'm going to go with the optimistic 2-0 victory as I try and claw my way back in the predictions campaign. Yeah, I, I may go for a kind of stodgy 1-1. Um, and then, yeah, kind of. I don't think there'll be a new signing either, but there's... There's obviously the, the Dennis Pryor talk has has resurfaced. Um, I, I feel that... I feel like I'll be like 45, and we'll still be talking about signing Dennis Pryor. 
Yeah, you might well be right. And who who knows if we'll bring a striker in in January? Eldor Shuramadov? Yes or no? I haven't seen enough of him, but I don't. He's he's not someone who makes me think he's gonna he's gonna plug our um, the plug the gap that we need to plug in attack in attack. So not sure. There's talk of of Sanabria and Borussia leaving, but um, Salonitana, who's with a suitor for Borussia, have just signed the. Um, Mexican World Cup legend, legend goalkeeper who allegedly plays club football as well. So we'll see. Yeah, they Tano just get playing once every four years. So. Yeah, in, indeed. But yeah, we'll. Um, I guess we'll reconvene um, post Verona New Year. Get back to the get back to the regular pods. And um, yeah, it's been a very 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 kind of haphazard return with, a, I guess, a lot to cover. Um, but yeah, wishing. Everyone, all the best for the festive season and Forza Toro. Forza Toro. Merry Christmas.